Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and you're listening to On The Clock. On The Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to On The Clock. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb. My guest today is Grayson Moss from the organization Art of Problem Solving. Today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, mathematics. Grayson, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, the way I understand it is art of problem solving is sort of like my son's club soccer team. He, he doesn't want to be good at soccer. He wants to be great. And so he spends a lot of hours with professional coaching uh, to, to make him better. Is that basically what art of problem solving does for math students? I would say so. Um, in a nutshell, we develop educational resources for eager and motivated math students a variety of ways that we do this. We have our own textbooks that we write and distribute. We have a growing and thriving online school. We have a network of in-person learning centers. We have 10 right now. I can talk more about that a little later. And then we also have a constellation of online applications, educational software, you name it. How did you get started? You obviously had to have a passion for this uh, yourself. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I came on board with the company uh, almost six years ago, fresh out of grad school. I was completing my doctoral work in sociocultural anthropology, of all things. <laughs> Not quite mathematics, um, but one of the things I was doing without taking too much of a deep dive into my PhD work is I was working in schools. I was working in our public school systems, trying to understand the culture of American education, kind of what works, what doesn't, but even more to the point, who it works for and who it doesn't work for. And I took a particular interest into STEM, uh, math and science. I think, you know, these are what I would consider kind of the most high stakes subjects in our uh, taught in our classrooms today, meaning the better you do in these subjects, the uh, greater the probability is going to be that you're going to get into a top tier university and then compete and win uh, some of these internationally competitive uh, careers that we're all searching for. And, uh, you know, math is really integral to that. Math is so important because it's not just, it's not just a box that you need to tick. Quite frankly, uh, math is important because it helps us become better thinkers, better problem solvers, uh, creative reasoners, critical thinkers, right? And so I believe that, you know, like other languages, math is a language that models the world around us. And the, uh, the earlier that we can expose students to this language um, and help them become fluent in it, the better off they're going to be, not just in that subject, but as thinkers, period. And so because I care deeply about education and educational outcomes, I think that's the, one of the most important things we could focus our energy on. Um, this really seemed like the company to me that was, you know, uh, breaking the best ground in, in this arena. I was looking at your website, um, and we will link to that on the notes section of all of our podcast links. It, it noted that you have, for the last five years, uh, every single member of the International Math Olympics team for America have been alumni of yours. Is that part of the origin? Yes, it is. So we actually got our start uh, in the early 90s. So our, our founder, Richard Russick, current CEO of the company, uh, co-wrote a two-volume series aptly named The Art of Problem Solving. 
Um, this was really an effort to fill a gap in the literature that was uh, was was there at the time, which is a go-to source to help students like Richard at the time and plenty of other, other eager math students out there uh, that wanted to think about, discuss, do math at a level far beyond what you would find typically in our schools. And if you're one of these students and you have aspirations of competing and succeeding in everything from you know math counts, which is essentially a middle school level math competition at the highest level in this country, all the way up to the International Math Olympiad, where you would be one of only six students to represent the United States and competing against well over a hundred other countries. Um, if you want to do well in these types of competitions, you need to be able to think outside the box. You need to take kind of a non-standard approach to mathematics and mathematical problem solving. And that's where we come in. So that's what those two books uh, sought to do. Uh, they still have uh, quite good readership. <laughs> we, <laughs> we sell a bunch of those books every year, um, but we've expanded considerably. And uh, we still work with you know, those very, very top students. Um, and going back to what you mentioned earlier about the IMO team, there had been a 20-year drought for the United States winning that competition. Uh, last time we had won it was 90, 94, 95. And then we won it again in uh, 16, 17, um, and uh, 18, 19. So actually, you know what? I'm sorry about that. I think I actually have, I think I might have that wrong. I think it was 15, 16, skip 17, 18, 19. There you go. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of Americans think that we're horrible at math. And I think they'd be surprised to know that our Olympic math team has had some success in the last few years. What, what do you attribute that to? What, what attributed to the drought and what do you think attributed to the success? Yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to look at this. So you can evaluate um, a country's, you know, kind of math education on the broadest level. And one of the key kind of tests or, or metrics that people use are the PISA rankings, right? And the latest data set that we have for that is, came out in 2018, uh, United States falls 25th on that scale, right? right. So you've got, you've got some uh, countries like Norway and Switzerland that are ahead of us, and then we're just ahead of places like France and stuff like this. Um, that actually has been kind of an upward trajectory for us. Um, you know, we, were, we weren't in the 20s several years ago, we are now. So I think that that's somewhat encouraging. But interestingly, if you take a look at, you know, our top students, the very, very best and brightest in high school competing against other countries' best and brightest, uh, as exhibited by the IMO results, we're, we're near the very top. In fact, you could argue that we're number one. Um, you might make a case for China as well, but it's, it's 1A, 1B, one way or another, right? And I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? If you've got a student, um, if, if you've got a, a child in the home that exhibits, you know, athletic prowess, it's really no great shakes for us as parents to go out and find the best resources, the best training, the best gear, um, everything in order to maximize that student's athletic potential. Interestingly, we don't think that way in the United States, at least not on a broad scale. It's the way that we think, I would say for the most part is, okay, you know, we go, we, you know, put our, uh, our son and or our daughter into a you know, decent public school system. They seem to be getting A's and B's in math. End of the story, they're doing well. When it really should just be the beginning of the story. 
If you have a child in the home that has a proclivity for mathematics and quantitative reasoning and thinking, we should take the same type of approach that we do with sports and apply that to math and STEM fields and maximize their potential. Give the, those students the best resources, the best training, the best tools, the best programs, the best communities that they can immerse themselves in, challenge themselves, and reach new heights. Um, I would argue that it's more important to do this in math and science relative to athletics, if not for any other reason, then quite frankly, all that training in, in the athletic realm is probably going to lead to them having a, a good you know, number of years enjoying themselves, but probably not going to become professional athletes. Whereas if you maximize your potential as a math and science student, it opens up a world of possibilities for you in, in your career. You know, I, I think there's two kinds of uh, thoughts on, there's two kinds of people in this country, right? Those who love uh, Neil Diamond and those who hate Neil Diamond. There, there's really no middle ground. I think the same is true with math. Uh, I, I think that it's a happy coincidence that if a, if a, I have this experience myself. My son missed one on the SAT in math, right? I, he got none of that from me. I probably would have been much better off giving him some extra help in this area uh, to see where he could go with it. He's 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 a honors chemistry student now in college. But you're so right. Like in sports, I was told years ago that if you want to go to college for soccer, you cannot rely on a high school team. You have to get them into a club program. And we've known that about other sports. And I was thinking through it before the show. Like if you wanted to play tennis at a high, high level, you don't even go to a real school. You go to a, a academy and you spend most of your time playing tennis and you do online schooling. And then I started thinking, well, maybe football would be the exception that most kids can learn football. But the, I follow college football quite a bit. And the great players all get special training outside of even their high school, which spends. We just did an interview with the state championship uh superintendent for a school that won the whole thing in Texas, which is a pretty good football state. I guarantee all those players went out of their way to get into that school, but they all did separate training. And I think that is a mindset that Americans really don't have when it comes to the basics of education. That's right. Uh, and you, and you see this kind of, you know, bear itself out in many different spaces. Think about walking into you know, almost any high school, right? You're going to see trophy cases of that school's accomplishments. What are we choosing to kind of highlight here, right? You're going to see a lot of the sports, a lot of the sports trophies. You're going to see banners, uh, you know, individual awards, team awards, these kinds of things, basketball, football, volleyball, soccer, whatever it is, right? And don't get me wrong, athletics is very important. I myself, you know, played multiple sports growing up. I'm still a big, big sports fan myself. However, um, it needs to be said that if we're going to be, you know, privileging the skills uh, that students need and promoting those skills that they need to, to do well after they get out of these schools, then focusing more on STEM would be, would be the wise way to go. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one arena. And I think if you look at some of these other countries, they do a better job of kind of focusing on that. And I think especially finding and then delivering opportunities for their children in this regard. So, you know, in a lot of places, um, you know, I've, I've actually traveled to Asia quite a bit. Um, in a lot of places that I've seen over there, 
uh, you know, it's not uncommon for students to, you know, go through their typical, you know, workload, let's say in, in school. And then after that, participate in some kind of extracurricular academic enrichment opportunity, probably focused around math and science or maybe, maybe both. And so we have some learning centers here and it always, um, it, it strikes me in the communities that we enter, there are plenty of people that understand kind of intrinsically the value of school beyond school, right? It's everything that we're talking about right now, but there are a whole bunch of people um, that don't, they haven't been sold on that notion yet. Again, this is the type of parent that says, well, you know, my son and daughter go to this, you know, wonderful school over here and they're getting good grades. And that's good. It's just the, it's the jumping off point, right? So in schools, there's this ceiling um, that we've kind of artificially set for a lot of students and it's called, you know, the, the letter scale, right? Getting A's. So a lot of these students that are high ability students, they might, they might hit that ceiling and then, you know, uh, teachers and parents might pat themselves on the back to say like, this is great. Like, you know, they're doing well. The problem is that student has so much more un unlocked potential and they could be challenged in ways that are really going to help them realize that. So maybe that ceiling shouldn't be here. Maybe that ceiling should be here. And that's where we really specialize. We specialize in taking students that have at least proficiency level understanding of grade level mathematics, probably a little bit beyond that. And then we challenge them in ways that they aren't typically challenged in the typical school system to help them reach their potential. And so our, our learning centers are a, a good kind of a barometer of this. And in fact, when we open them, sometimes, you know, parents will say that they're like, oh, no, we don't need tutoring help, um, you know, because people think about school beyond school as a place where students go to kind of get up to grade level. We don't typically think of these spaces as as venues where you're already doing really well in school. Now let's maximize that. I did some work for Jim Simons about 12 years ago, who is the billionaire hedge fund manager in out of New York, a global banking company. He, he brought his own mathematical skill uh, to the hedge fund world and the results sort of speak for themselves. And he had an interesting point to me uh, in, in as we were talking that in his experience of, of growing up in the 50s and the early 60s, we had a really bad thing called a glass ceiling in American education where uh, women, my mother was one of them, really the only, only job an educated woman could get was that of a teacher. And so you had an extra pool of really gifted math teachers in America teaching math and getting kids excited about it. As women have you know, gladly enjoyed the freedom of, of breaking through that glass ceiling, we, we have a couple of other hurdles, don't we, in American education? And that is how do you get a really gifted thoughtful math teacher in a, uh, into a classroom for fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year when they can make two, three times that working for Google or Amazon or somewhere else. So that really is part of the challenge, isn't it, is finding those teachers. Uh, and if you're a parent, it seems to me you'd be looking for any way you can to get in front of somebody that can be as motivational to an, a gifted math student as a, you know, a loud, dynamic football coach is to a, a gifted football player. Yeah, there's no doubt. And that that's a, a very, very good point to make. I mean, I've I've known and believed for some time that, you know, that's one of the issues that I think we could really focus a little bit more on, broadly speaking, in this country is, you know, how are we going to support and empower teachers? 
uh, in ways that we traditionally or historically haven't. Uh, I think that there is a uh, kind of a mismatch there in terms of incentivization lineup, right? If you're a bright, smart, motivated person and you, you know, spent a lot of money investing in yourself to get education from a top tier university, um, then, you know, you're at least financially incentivized. And there are other ways that you are incentivized kind of socially with regard to prestige and things like this to go into medicine, to go into law, you know, to go into business, these kinds of things. And so what that leaves is kind of this uh, a dearth of talent uh, in some places in terms of incentivizing people to go into teaching, right? Because it is hard work. And oftentimes you don't get all of the, all of the, the full complement of thanks uh, that is probably uh, due. So one of the ways that we feel that we're really kind of helping is by partnering with schools. So we don't look at what we do as being uh, kind of a challenge to, to schools as they presently exist. We know that there are millions of students that go through our public education system, and that's not going anywhere. So rather than trying to, let's say, fight a system and go against stream, let's, let's swim in the same stream and help as much as we can. One is, yes, please go for it. Well, I was just going to say, I'm, this is traditionally higher mathematic education has really been rather elite, hasn't it, over the history of, of the country. And it sounds like you guys are trying to democratize higher level mathematic thinking and, and problem solving. That's right. And you're exactly right. Um, it's, you know, historically been the case that these um, that these kinds of opportunities are really relegated to few, and we want to do our part in making sure that they are accessible to really all students. We do this in a number of ways. One of the ways that we do this is by creating a diversity of kind of programs, uh, of experiences, of ways of engaging with us. Everything from, you can go to Art of Problem Solving right now and play around with a lot of our free resources and tools as uh, you know, a way to just kind of get your feet wet to full, you know, full scale year long courses that you could take in our academies and then everything in between. Um, now in terms of like students that we're serving, one of our programs that we're extremely proud of is BEAM. It's an acronym that stands for Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics. So we have a, a robust um, nonprofit arm called the Art of Problem Solving Initiative and our flagship program under that is BEAM. Beam actually got its start in inner city New York, working uh, with school systems where we wanted to identify the students whom we believed would really benefit from taking, uh, taking our courses, engaging in our materials and resources, uh, this kind of thing. But these students would not have typically um, been able to have access to the opportunities that we provide, whether it's for financial reasons or other reasons. And so it's very important for us to seek out these students where they are, go to them, find them, and then provide for them the kinds of opportunities that, for instance, their affluent peers can enjoy, which actually helps to set them apart in terms of, you know, in terms of their educational outcomes. We want to provide those kinds of outcomes uh, for everyone. You said you had 10 centers. Um, give me a quick snapshot on, on where you're located around the country. Yeah, so we've got some on both coasts and we've got a few in the middle. Um, so California, I'm talking to you right now from uh, DC. So we've got one in Virginia, one in Maryland. We've got a center in Texas. Um, we've got, you know, just opened our, our most recent center in uh, Lexington in Massachusetts. 
And then we have a center in uh, Bellevue, right outside Seattle. Um, and we actually, one of the, you know, we have a couple more, but one of the things that we were able to, uh, to do this past year when the pandemic descended on, upon all of us <laughs> is because all those students that were taking classes in our physical learning centers, uh, we needed something to do and we needed something to do with them real quick because we had to pivot and provide that same high quality experience that they had been receiving week in, week out in the physical learning centers. Thankfully for us, we had been thinking deeply about quality online education and what quality outcomes look like for years. I would argue years, um, uh, you know, years before others were even starting to dive into the space. That really benefited us in ways that we couldn't even, even fully imagine. We were able to quickly transition uh, that experience for thousands of students across the country into a virtual experience. And we were able to transition just within, you know, let's say a month or two tops. And that, that program, that implementation, which we now call the virtual campus, you can find it uh, at AOPS Academy, is, uh, was successful enough that we're sticking with it. And so now, in addition to our growing network of in-person learning centers, we will keep the virtual campus there as well, which also serves as a great option for students who aren't in uh, the geographic regions where we currently have uh, physical learning centers. And that might be your offering for school districts that might want to engage with the, the platform? We do something slightly differently there. So what we do is, well, I would say first and foremost is Beast Academy. Beast Academy is, I would say, represents maybe of, of all the schools that we work with, 70% of them are Beast Academy schools, if not maybe slightly more. Beast Academy is our elementary math curriculum. It is fundamentally different from any math curriculum you've seen at the, at the elementary level uh, before. For one, it started as a book series and that book series is structured after a graphic novel. So what is more important than bringing students to the table? If you want them to become math people, you want them to engage, you want them to have great outcomes, you want them thinking deeply about these mathematical concepts. Well, step one of getting, getting there is getting students to buy in, getting them excited about it, piquing their interests. Um, the graphic novel form format has been kind of uh, instrumental in that, but that alone is not enough. You have to keep students there. You have to keep them engaged. And the way that we do that is with the math itself. So rather than the standard and typical approach to elementary mathematics, it's one that I remember growing up. It's one that almost everyone I talk to uh, remembers growing up, which is it's very standard. It's very rote. It is heavy on memorization, process, and procedure. Give you an example, everyone remembers uh, memorizing their times tables and then seeing worksheets with 20 problems on them that are structurally identical, but maybe the, uh, the numbers are switched around a little bit. I was always very good at those tests. I would get 100s on them, but I was relying on my memorization in order to get through them. And what I've come to realize is that I wasn't doing math at all. I was just memorizing a bunch of stuff and then regurgitating it on a paper. And then from an outcomes perspective, it looked like I was doing really well, right? I was getting every problem right. But when we teach students in that way, we're not really teaching them to think. We're just teaching them steps they need to follow and then they follow them like good robots. <laughs> and so the, the thing that we really wanna capitalize and what we want to provide for students is problem solving skills. 
outside the box thinking, critical thinking. And so what you'll find in all of the lessons that we've created, all of the problems that, that we've created in our curricula, starting with Beast Academy at the elementary level and then all the way through your art of problem solving material, which goes through calculus, is that there is a very intentional and deep focus on problem solving. So we have thought provoking problems with non-intuitively obvious paths to an answer, which students, when they first see them, it might be a little bit jarring, but that in and of itself is an indicator that they're doing the good stuff. Because when you're challenged, um, when you when it's not entirely obvious as to how to solve a problem, you have to really apply yourself and you have to use your critical thinking. And the earlier students do that, the better they're going to be. I, I've heard a million times that the easiest way to learn a foreign language is to do it when you're young, because for all manner of reasons, the brain is able to absorb that information at a younger age easier than if you're, say, 55 and wanted to learn a new language. I imagine the same has to be true for mathematics as well. I and mean, that's why you, you have a huge focus on that elementary piece. That's exactly right. In fact, I actually use that analogy quite a bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> math, math is a language itself, right? It's a language that models the world around us. And just like any language, you know, the earlier that you're exposed to it, the more, you know, frequently that you have been instructed to grapple with it, the better off you're going to be. Um, you're precisely right. That is why we're, from an institutional engagement perspective, working with schools, Beast Academy is really our, our big ticket right now. Uh, we believe that that is not only an opportunity to provide for students the, quite frankly, the math curriculum we wish we had when we were kids, um, but the students that are exposed to this kind of thinking from a very early age that stick with it and then keep going, their outcomes are through the roof. They're able to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, not only mathematically, but we see, and you know, from all the conversations we have with our partner schools, that their students when going through Beast Academy, they're not just better at math, they're, they're better in their science classes, they're, they're better readers, right? They're just, they're just becoming stronger thinkers, period. And in so many ways, that's actually what we say we're doing. So we are called the art of problem solving. And we, one thing that we like to say, which is uh, somewhat tongue in cheek, but there's also a modicum of truth to this, is that we're not even necessarily teaching math, we're teaching problem solving, we're just doing it through math. It a friend of mine was driving from Kentucky this last week to Connecticut and he and I were on the phone and he, he was lamenting the fact that he used to take long drives with his family. And part of the fun was, was reading the map and figuring out the best route and where should we stop? And now we only focus on the next turn or next exit through whatever device we're using uh, to take a long drive. And, and then I, I, I commented on the fact that when I was a kid, I probably had memorized about 100 phone numbers, individual places where my mom and dad would go. Hint, it was the Moose Lodge. And, and, and then a golf course that I would play on or uh, the school to get a hold of my mom. And now I, I, if, if I had to really think through all the phone numbers I know currently, you know, not the old ones, but the ones I have right now, I, I'd be embarrassed to tell you that I don't know more than three or four. It, and, it, and my question for you on that is, it, have we lost something in that type of natural problem solving? Has technology made us dumber in some ways? Or conversely, would you take the opposite view that perhaps it frees our mind up to be even more creative and more thoughtful and focus on uh, other areas? And, and that sort of gets to automation. Like what, 
What are your concerns about math when in a world where robots are doing all the work for us? Yeah, great question. I love that one. So let me go back to, you know, when we're, we do what are called barnstorming tours of sorts when we're opening up new campuses in different, you know, places around the world. And we'll reach out to some venues, uh, namely might be schools that we have a good relationship with. They'll help get the word out. And then what we'll do is we'll end up speaking to an auditorium of, you know, maybe two or 300 parents, teachers, you know, administrators, sometimes students. And when we get to that point in our, in our speeches uh, where we're saying, um, hey, this is the world that we live in now. This is why this type of education and these types of uh, programs are so beneficial because they help you think outside the box. They don't, you're not recapitulating these you know, tried and true patterns that are going to become automated. We'll survey the room and we'll say, hey parents, um, how many of you should by show of hands in your careers are given problems every day and 98% of the time or more, you know exactly how to solve it, you know how to solve it quickly and you can do it right away and it'll be the same solution every time. We don't see a, one hand go up and we say, that's good. Because if you did have, if we did see a hand go up, we tell you to get your resume ready, a robot's coming for that job. Anything that can be just hammered out, anything that can lend itself to automation. And we see this you know, in every industry. Robots are coming for these jobs, right? And so what's left for people? Well, spoiler alert, there's a lot left for us. But the one thing that is going to be beneficial no matter what venue, what area of work you find yourself is the ability to be a problem solver, to be, to, in what, it, what that means to me is you're, you're encountering an obstacle. It could be a problem. It could be uh, something within work. It could be a puzzle. It could be anything, right? But it's something that requires a solution. And it's not immediately obvious as to where to start or the path that you would take in order to get there. So it requires all of it requires all of the skills that we're developing in students, the critical thinking, the outside the box thinking, logic, deductive and inductive reasoning, all of these keys that are going to make that are going to make you uh, a confident thinker and problem solver, regardless of what that problem is. That's what we want to build in our students. We don't want to just you know, say, okay, we're gonna help you do better on math tests. We're going to help make sure that your teachers can check boxes that you know, um, pertain to common core state standards and things like this. And don't get me wrong, you know, foundational conceptual knowledge is always important, but what do we do past that, right? Like how are we gonna set ourselves apart as human beings? The thing that we have in spades is this brain up here. This is what sets us apart from any other living entity on this planet. And our ability to really critically problem solve is second to none. And so I'm not too worried about what the world looks like as long in you know 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, as long as we're providing our children today with the skills they need in order to confidently step into that world, regardless of what it looks like. Well, I mean, I, I meet a lot of parents on sidelines who whose college plan is is basically getting their kid as good at some sport as they possibly can and then hoping for A's and B's and a good test score. If you want your kid to go to a great college, I, I would 
I would strongly suggest they knock on the door of Art of Problem Solving. We are going to link uh, to your site, Grayson, and we'll find a way to link to you if people have questions. I can't thank you enough for being on our show. We didn't even get into popular popular culture because uh, this is such a fascinating topic. But I really uh, would love to have you on next time, and maybe if, if we get uh, if we see an, an implementation that you're doing in in one of our uh, larger cities around the country, I'd love to dive into what you're doing there uh, as you uh, bring equity to mathematics in this country. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit www.strategosgroup.com. Please consider subscribing on your podcast streaming platform so you don't miss out on our next episode. And until next time, I'm Todd Dallas-Lamb, signing off.